thrilled to be here. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I've got sons who are in the 18 to 30s age group, and uh, I was a student chaplain in Oxford for many years, but when I was double the age of my students, I felt it was time to move on and do something different. And for the last 13, 14 years, I've been an associate minister in Oxford, but traveling around and teaching in various contexts. And uh, whenever I have an invitation to come and speak to the vineyard, I always jump at it. Because I always feel better when I've been at a conference with the vineyard. Many church traditions, many contexts I go to, I feel exhausted at the end. But somehow with the vineyard, I just feel energized. And uh, amen. Exactly. Um, you know, sometimes you think you're in California when you're with the vineyard. They've just got a kind of cool culture. And uh, I love the vineyard. I've always loved the vineyard. I tried to become a vineyard pastor, but the Lord had other things in mind, and I ended up an Anglican vicar. But uh, part of my heart has always been with vineyard. And I became a Christian in 85. Um, in, in 1985, I watched a video. It was a video of John Wimber ministering, and uh, he, just, he just grabbed me. And uh, I became a bit of a groupie whenever he came to England in 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. I just followed him everywhere, you know, sort of just wanting to listen and learn and draw from that remarkable man. And it's been a great privilege and joy for me over these years in ministry to uh, be invited and to hang out with Vineyard, some of my best friends in the church a vineyard, and I, I love the vineyard, and I love their DNA. I love what God has birthed in them. I love their intimacy in worship. They've just taught us how to worship, and what that spectacular worship. I mean, we're not here to stroke the band, but let's give them a round of applause. It was, they were wonderful, and they, they helped us meet God. And I love their vineyard commitment to the poor, and I love the vineyard commitment to um, resisting a religious spirit. And I love the vineyard commitment to doing the stuff. And the vineyard commitment to everyone gets to play. And every member ministry. And the immediacy of God. And community and family. And church planting. She's a wonderful movement. And um, God bless you. And uh, I remember the first time I went to a vineyard church in England. It was the only vineyard church in England. And now there are 120. And uh, a little while ago, I had the privilege of speaking to about 50 leaders from all the different countries, heads of countries that the vineyard oversaw. Men and women of God from Nepal and India and China and South America. It was extraordinary. God's doing a wonderful thing. Uh, but many of them were getting old. They were sort of old gray beards. Uh, uh, I mean, the ladies weren't. The gentlemen were. Um, but we've got to pass that baton on. And uh, that's what this conference is about. Um, passing on the baton and equipping the saints and raising up the next generation so that they can be the people God's called them to be and do the stuff and fulfill the vision and the mandate that God has placed on vineyard. So you're not here, and I know you, you haven't come just for that, to have a good time, but you will have that. 
but we're here to hear from God, to meet with God, to receive a, a fresh revelation from him and vision for our lives and our service in the vineyard while we're here. I loved that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Wasn't that wonderful? I mean, all the songs were wonderful, but to end with that was so glorious. And what I want to do in this session is for us to, as it were, survey the wondrous cross. The great theologian Karl Barth said, you've got to begin again at the beginning. He said that the church was always going wrong. She was always being undermined. That what was central to who she is and what she does was always being pushed to the periphery and worldly and secular values were always creeping onto the main stage. And Bart said, you gotta begin again at the beginning. T.S. Eliot said that we've gotta come back and find that place and know it for the first time. Founder of the, the vineyard, John Wimber said, the, the way in is the way on. How did we get in? How did we first meet the Lord? How did we encounter? We met him at the cross and we gotta keep coming back to the cross and recalibrating our theology and our spirituality and our ministry from the cross. Begin again at the beginning. We're gonna have some great sessions over the next couple of days, some wonderful times. We're looking to God to pour out the spirit upon us, but in this first session, and I hope it's not gonna come over too heavy, but I want to call you dear vineyard leaders back to the cross. We gotta begin again at the beginning. Incidentally, when I preach, I either sweat or cry. I sweat because I'm a fat man and not very well, and I cry because I get moved by some of this. Even my own words move me sometimes. <laughs> If you've got a Bible, uh, which you have, I'm sure, on your phones, but there are some paper versions, which I always recommend on sale today. Let's buy them all. Let them have a problem. Sell them, selling out. Because often when you've got the Bible on the phone, you're tempted to go onto Instagram or to start twitting or whatever they call it. And, you know, emails and all texts and take selfies and all of that sort of thing. Listen. It's always good to have a paper one. But I'm not being legalistic. I know I'm a dinosaur. Galatians chapter one and verse six. St. Paul is writing to a church in trouble. Nearly all his letters, apart from Ephesians, were to churches in trouble and his epistles to um, Timothy and Titus dealing with stuff. But the church in Galatia is a church in trouble and he's calling her back to the cross. But this is what he says, and these words are hard. I'm not gonna expound them. Uh, it's not gonna be a sort of expositional sermon. I'm just gonna sort of be speaking to this theme this afternoon. Verse six, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ as it was then, so it is now. There's a lot of confusion around. There's a lot of perversion of the gospel. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be eternally condemned. Bit strong, Paul. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be eternally condemned. Wow. Why was Paul so edgy? Why was Paul so strong? Why did Paul repeat himself in such a manner as to pronounce a condemnation upon people? What was that all about? In this church that he loved, a church that he planted, a church that he poured his life into, a church that received the gospel, embraced Christ, were filled with the Spirit, were baptized, and started running the race. False teaching has come in. And these false teachers have added to the gospel. They brought a different gospel with all sorts of rules and regulations and stipulations. And as a result, this church, they're confused. They've moved away from the cross. They've moved, they graduated from the gospel. They're onto higher things. They're onto the law. And the men are circumcising themselves because they think God will be impressed by that. They're trying to become Jewish in their religious practice. They've got it wrong. False teachers have added to the gospel. By adding to it, they've subtracted from it, and the church are in danger. And that's why Paul can come in here so edgy, so strong, so robust and say, no, not a chance. And even if some angel comes and says something contrary to what I told you when I presented the gospel to you, anathema. Well, we're not pouring out anathemas this afternoon, hopefully pouring out some blessings. But this is serious stuff. And we live in serious days. And every generation has to contend for the gospel. Every generation, often at a point of transition, there comes an assault upon the gospel, and the gospel is the first thing to go to be diluted. And your generation are facing contestation at the level of the gospel. What is it? Who's it for? How does it work? How do we receive it? And so on. We've got to begin again at the beginning. And Paul says, don't accept anything if I didn't preach it, if I didn't tell you it. So many Christians sell out rather than tell out the gospel. They just sell it out. And not you, not the vineyard, and not on your watch. I haven't really got any points. I'm just going to sort of, you know, riff off this theme. But if you want a point, here's one. We're a gospel people or we're irrelevant. We're a gospel people or we're an irrelevance to the kingdom, irrelevance to the world and a hindrance even to the kingdom. A while ago, I was invited to write an article for a popular Christian newspaper. And um, the editor went around asking a number of Christian leaders of whatever 
if they would write, who, who have a traveling ministry, to write a letter conveying something of the perspective that they've got on the wider church. And by God's grace and the church's, well, I was going to say irresponsibility, but for whatever reason, I've done about 200 conferences in the last few years. So I've traveled a lot and seen a lot of different churches, a lot of different church contexts in different countries. And so I've got a bit of a perspective. And uh, the person, editor, who happened to be one of my students when I was a chaplain in Oxford and uh, was pulling in old favors, asked me to write a letter along with far more distinguished church leaders like Debbie Wright. Anyway, I set aside a day, like a few weeks in advance, that I was going to write something on this. I didn't know what I was going to write, but I had a sense it was around this theme of the gospel. And uh, on the day that I set aside to write on it and cleared the diary for it, I walked into work, but I walked into work a different way. And I've walked for 13 or 14 years the, the same way into work down the same road. But this time I, I went around a back street. I don't know why, I just did. And as I was going over one of these little bridges in Oxford, I saw one of those blue historic plaques. You know the ones I mean? You know, at some point in the past, someone who you've never heard of lived here for a week. You know the sort of thing. And it was one of them. And, uh, but it actually was talking about something that had died here. And as I looked at this, I, I saw it and thought, oh, I've never seen that before. And then I carried on, and I just felt the Lord nudge me. So I went back to it, and I looked at it, and I read it again. There was once something here, and it is no more. And then it was as if the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. And he said, the church is in danger of just becoming a blue, historic, memorial kind of plaque or plate on the wall. At some point, there was a church here. At some point, there was something with someone who lived for Christ here, but no more. Relegated to a plaque on a wall. And it's certainly true that if you go around the country, there are hundreds and hundreds of churches that were, or, or church buildings that were, once, that were set apart and consecrated to love God, worship him, reach out to the community, expand the world, build up the saints, and they're no more. They've been turned into flats. Over 500 Anglican churches in London have been turned into flats, sold off. Or go to Wales. Every village has got former Methodist churches and former chapels that were once thriving and full of worship and are no more. You can buy anything in what was once a church. Carpet warehouses and phones and, you know, takeaways. Wine, in Oxford, we've got a wine bar in a former church. Get anything in a church these days except God in some of them. And I'm looking at this plaque. And I'm thinking, wow, and it's as if the Lord started speaking to me. This is the church. This is the, the danger of the church. And I thought, what, what is this about? And, and in, at that moment, that very moment, I'm looking at the plaque. I'm stood there. I'm thinking, is this what I'm to write about, a plaque on a bridge? My phone goes off, and I pick it up, and, it, and there's this long text message from a mate of mine. And he says, I'm at, our I'm at a church growth conference. I'm leading the worship. I'm sat there, he said, playing the piano, keyboards, not piano, keyboards, much cooler-ish, <laughs> maybe, probably not, but cool anyway. And um, 
said, I'm playing the keyboard and the cross on the platform at the end of the church, uh, you know, in the East End, has fallen off. And as we've worshipped, the cross has hit the floor. He's, and he's texted me all this in short time. All these te- he said, but no one has noticed. He's at the side, leading, like the keys there, playing the keys. The cross has hit the floor. And everyone's lost in wonder, love, and praise with their eyes closed and their head back and their heart belting out. And no one has realized the cross is on the floor. And he just was amused by this. What do I do? Do I stop the worship and rehang it or what? What do you do? And, he, and it was as if the Holy Spirit just triangulated it for me, what I was seeing, my concern for the church, what he was saying about the plaque, the history, and the, the cross sitting in the floor. And I felt the Lord just say that if we drop the cross, we lose the plot. That's where it goes wrong. There are a number of factors that lead to that. But actually, if we lose the cross, we, we've lost it. Drop the cross and lose the plot. And so I just want to share a few thoughts about coming back to the cross and putting the cross central. And at the end of this session, we're going to bring in a cross. Apparently, they didn't have one here, but they've made one. I love the vineyard. They can do anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> If in the Church of England, we'd have to have faculties for that. We'd have to have PCC meetings. We'd have arguments. People would be concerned about cost. But Vineyard, Trent, Nottingham, make one. If we can have a cross in here, it's going to be beautiful. And I'm going to invite you at the end of this session to just not manipulate you, not pressure you. You don't have to do it. But it's going to be here. It might be here throughout the conference for you to respond. To just bring yourself again, whether physically or from yourself. Or, or mentally, in, in, in your imagination, bring yourself to the cross and say, I want to be someone who lives from the cross, lives to hold out the cross. I am not going to be part of a generation that sells it out. I'm going to be part of a generation that tells it out. Amen? Come on, this is Vineyard. That was, I'm not very good at that kind of thing, but amen? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Let me go back to being an Anglican. Right. You know, in 1990, Vineyard had a trip. Wimber and a few of the leaders went down to Sydney in Australia. And they had a conference there, and there was a real pushback from it. It didn't go too well. And there was a group of theologians there, some real hardcore conservative theologians in the Sydney diocese, and they produced a booklet called The Briefing. I remember getting it and reading it. And in it, they basically criticized some of the theology and practice of the vineyard that was displayed at John Wimber's conference. And one of the things they criticized was the songs. And they said none of the songs mentioned the cross. Not one. They didn't talk about Jesus the Savior, Jesus the crucified, Jesus the one who bore our sins and took our punishment and took our pain. They just didn't talk about the cross. And the conservatives just said, this is not on. And it caused them to really worry about some of the other stuff. So they wrote a book criticizing Wimber. I read it. I thought it was, you know, part of it was out of order. But there was a response from the vineyard. This was Jack Deere. He was a theologian there at the time with Wimber. And he wrote this response. He said, John Wimber was ashamed before the Lord and embarrassed 
before these men who had pointed it out to him. And when Wimber returned home, he gathered all the writers of the vineyard music and confessed to them that he'd been remiss not stressing the cross enough. And he asked all of the worship, worship writers to begin concentrating on the cross in their work and in their meditation and to begin reading and rereading some of the classic texts on it. And he made it clear that it was his desire to see the Vineyard Church find a new depth of worship around the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, we've got to begin again at the beginning. We've got to come back to that place again and recalibrate where we are in line and in light of the cross. Our theology and our spirituality and our prayers and our missiology and what we think and how we are and what we do somehow must, to ref must reflect. It must flow from, it must apply the principles about the revelation of God and humankind and God's heart for the world that we see at the cross. The cross says it all. And the cross speaks into all these things. And we are a cross-shaped people. We're, you know, even the Anglican churches historically, or the, or the Catholic churches of the West historically, built their churches in cross shapes. They were all cross-shaped. Did you know that? Have you ever realized that? We're a cross-shaped people. And whilst in community, it's good to sit where you can see other people We've got to always remember it's the cross before us and the cross that constitutes us. I was invited. I'm sorry if this is a little bit of a personal anecdote, but that's what it is. Tomorrow I'll give you some more Bible. I was invited to speak at a, a very famous church, believe it or not. And I was intimidated. I was like really freaking out because I'm just a butcher. I, I was a butcher before I was a priest. I'm just a butcher from Bristol. And, you know, I feel sort of slightly in awe and overwhelmed by most things. You know, I get intimidated talking to you lot, let alone, you know, having to get on a plane and fly somewhere to a famous church and preach with filming. And I can't, I hate all that. Anyway, I got there and I did a men's conference to start with. And that was okay, but it wasn't great. And I thought, well, maybe I'm a bit jet-lagged. Maybe it's just me. Maybe they don't like the way I look. Maybe it's just a language thing. They... But it just felt a bit flat, I've got to be honest. And then on the Saturday night, uh, I went to bed, ready to get up for Sunday morning. They're going to pick me up and take me to this church. And I woke up wide awake at about 3 o'clock. Wasn't jet lag, I just wide awake. I was awake, I thought, right. And so I, I couldn't get back to sleep. I got up and uh, I, I went and made a cup of tea and I sat there. And I, I thought, well, I'll just pray for a few hours until they pick me up and take me to church. And I felt the Lord, I was a bit worried about this church, big church. And you want to make a, a good impression. You know, you want to impress people. You shouldn't want to impress people, but you do. Because, you know, I'm human. I'm in a body. It's fallen and sinful. And I don't want to fly all the way there to be, look like an idiot. So I just thought, so, Lord, I'm going to preach, you know, one of my best sermons. and I'm going to make them laugh and I'll make them cry and they'll run to the front and it'll be great. And, you know, I'll sell a few books and all of those worldly things, you know, just, just the flesh. And the Lord said, I want you to preach the gospel. 
about four o'clock in the morning by now. I thought, you are kidding me, God. What are you on? Preach the gospel. This is a famous charismatic church, and they know the gospel, and they don't need to hear the gospel from me. They need to hear brilliance and erudition from this Oxford chaplain and some, you know, I just, it, no, Lord, not, the, not that old gospel. By about five o'clock, I gave in. <coughs> I just thought, I'm, I'm losing this. I'm preaching the gospel. Anyway, the hours ticked by and we got to church. I got there and I know, the first thing I was aware was that this church that had once been over 5,000 people had about 500, about as many as you. That shocked me in a building for 7,000 people. They were just dotted everywhere. It was a bit weird. I thought, wow. And everything seemed to just be like in slow motion. It just, I thought, something's not quite right here. Anyway, I got up and I preached, and I preached the gospel. And by the grace of God, I just felt free. And I felt I had something to say. And I, I felt, you know, I, I conveyed it, you know, with the grace of God, the word of God. And there was an appeal and there was a response. And it was wonderful. And I was very grateful to God. And, ministry and then I sat down I sat it was to the right I sat down to the right and the dear pastor came up to me shook my hand a bit limply and he just said well that was boring what did, did I hear you right that was boring that was boring and then another man came up, an older man, and he was crying, he'd been crying. Tears in his eyes, he just held me and he just said, I used to travel with the former minister here. And when it was full and humming, and he, this is what he said, he loved to preach the gospel and to invite people to follow Jesus. Now, when do I, and I think the Lord took me all the way there, miles away, to do a conference that looked like an idiot, uh, to teach me something, that you can have had huge influence and real vibrancy and life and anointing and power and a global... You can have had all, all this wonderful fruit, but when you lose the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the gospel, things just wither away, and actually it's not the cross that was boring. Church is boring without the cross, because the cross, which is the heart of the gospel, is the most energizing, life-giving, vibrant, wonderful thing this world affords. Everything else is boring by comparison. The cross is always being attacked, and it's always being abandoned. That's what happened here in the church in Galatia that Paul is writing to. They're just a few years in and they've given up on the gospel. They've given up on grace. They've given up on the love of God. They've given up on Christ laying down his life. They've given up on the futility and failure of personal endeavor to make us right with God. They've given up on faith and grace 
righteousness that comes through faith and the gift of, they've given up on all of that and they're into working their way to heaven and impressing God by improving themselves, their own merit, building credit with God. What a nonsense. Religion, legalism, Pharisaism, it always, when the gospel goes, people get more religious sometimes. They get more legalistic. Have you had your quiet time? Have you prayed? Have you done this? Have you paid your time? Have you done it? It's a rule-based religion when we leave the cross behind. That's the church to the Galatians. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. They're, they've really blown it. He calls them back to the cross. He said, listen, when I was with you, I decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. What's happened to you? They were on to higher things, but in their case, not legalism, but license. They just thought, we're, we're saved already. We do what we want. Just, you know, live and let live. Let's go for it. And just the whole flesh was on display. And rather than apply the cross to their life and crucify the flesh, they just let, let it go. And so you've got the most bizarre things happening in the Corinthian church. You've got people having sex with their mother-in-law. Do you know what I mean? Bonkers. I mean, that might be trendy in the 21st century sick porn world, but then it was happening then. Sex with your mother-in-law. In church. Not in church, but happening with people in church. Sorry. That, I never said that before, and I'm never going to say it again, and I blame you. But it was immoral, and there were power plays going on. There were ministers in the Corinthian church hitting each other, smacking people around. Paul says, you put up with it, they slap you. What sort of a church is that? I've known of churches where the ministers hit their members. They hit their staff. And then we've got the Colossian church. They're just nuts. Paul writes to them, they're just, they've lost it. They've just gone all new age. They're weird. Special days and special diets and special religious duties and you know, I mean really they've gone all crazy and Paul in all of these churches says you've got to begin again at the beginning you've got to come back to basics you've got to come back to the cross it seems when you look at scripture and when you look at the history of the church that that, that the, the gospel is either added to with religious demands or undermined and people are set free to do whatever they want. We've got to keep coming back to the gospel, studying it, seeking to understand it, mining it uh, of, of all its riches, seeing what has been laid up there, trying to understand it from every different angle. What is it about? Why did it happen? Why was it necessary? What does God say about it? And, and just put it right at the heart of what we have to say, how we pray, how we worship, and what we do. It's interesting that in this letter to Galatians, it says, if an angel comes and tells you something different, let him be accursed. Even if an angel comes. One of the things I've observed over the years is that often charismatics, they, charismatics rarely tend to become legalistic. They just tend to become more Gnostic and kind of esoteric. And often an indicator of this is a fascination with angels. Always a warning light to me. 
I thank God for angels. They're all around. They joined us in worship. You know, there are myriads upon myriads of them. And they serve the saints. And they're there. We, we, haven't, we don't know anything really about who they are and what they do for us. There have been times in my life I know I've been with the angels. Amazing thing. I had a serious crash a few years ago. I'm lying there on the floor. And uh, I lost a lot of blood. And I spent 19 days in hospital and months in a wheelchair. I was in a really bad way. But as I lay there, waiting for the ambulance, and a friend who was with me called my wife, who was just around the corner, came. Someone, this beautiful woman, that's all I could say, held me. And she held my head in her lap. And she was stroking me. She was just saying, it's going to be okay, Simon. It's going to be okay. I'm dying. My heart, anyway. Tiffany came. She said, Tiffany, take over. Tiffany knelt down, held my head. The woman vanished. She wasn't there. Tiffany said, she vanished. She just vanished. I was ill, but I remember her. Tiffany wasn't ill. She remembered her. She went. I'm sure it was an angel. Thank God for the angels. Listen, but we don't get interested or excited about them. We don't. The Bible rarely does a study on them. It assumes their presence, their support, their involvement. Thank God for them. If they turn up, let's be surprised and thankful and worship the Lord. But you go around and you see this. In church. They're just into angels. They're all about angels. I'm not interested in angels. They work for God. I'm a child of God who serves God. You know, get your priorities right. Not you. Others who are into them. Okay, I went to one famous revival and this is what the minister said at this revival. He said that he was talking to the Lord, yeah, and the, he said, Lord, isn't it about getting the people to believe in Jesus? Yes. And then he said, but God replied, you've got to get people believing in the angel. They already believe in Jesus. And the angel that he was interested in was an angel who was very tall, who was going to make them all very rich. Listen, that is pathetic. That is her heretical. It is demonic. And the saints fall for it time and time again. And I've seen it, and I see it in the charismatic church where people who are very spiritual become super spiritual. The most spiritual thing in the universe is the gospel. We're not interested in portals. It's at the cross that heaven touches earth. That is the open heaven. That is where we meet God. I know it's a bit strong. I'll tone it down tomorrow, honestly. Let me have some water. One of the most influential charismatic leaders in years written a book and ministry that's associated with the proliferation of feathers. And in his book he says, God wants to take us further and we can only get there by following the signs. And our present understanding of scripture can't get us there. We need to follow the signs, what is, like feathers. 
I don't want to overstep the mark, but listen to me. There are 400 billion birds in the world. <laughs> and all of them molt every year, and some of them twice a year. And that makes for a lot of feathers. You find them everywhere. You find them in church, you find them in your bedroom, you find them in your underpants, you find them anywhere. <laughs> Seriously, it is not a sign of God. It is, it is an abstraction. It is a distraction. It is not the gospel. It has nothing to do with the gospel at all. And people even think there's evidence of angels. Well, apart from the cherubim, around the throne, angels appear like humans. They don't have feathers. Seriously, I don't wish to be insulting, except what Paul says, even if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, let him be cursed. So I feel I'm in, I'm in the zone. I'm trying to be faithful. If I'm wrong, you tell me, but not right now. I'll finish this. In 1961, Arthur Wallace, one of the great apostolic leaders, said, the, world is our, the word is our standard, and by it, everything must be judged. But alas, there has been a simulation of the movement of the spirit and things have been worked up by human ingenuity so that experiences have become soulish and superficial and not spiritual. He says, I'm open, wide open to everything that comes from heaven, but I am fearful of what men can work up. The test is the cross. We apply the cross, the love of God, the sacrifice of God, the blood of Christ, the redemption that he works. That's the spiritual thing. Some friends of mine are vets in Northern Ireland. And they wrote to me, they said, they've got to tell me something. They knew I'd preach it, but they, they didn't do it. They just said, we've got to tell you something. You're not going to believe it. A vet that they had trained who was then in Scotland, and it was published in the Vets Journal, so it's true. And I checked it with them last year when I was in Northern Ireland last summer. A couple went into the vets, the vet that they'd trained, with a cardboard box with these two furry things. And they said to the uh, veterinary nurse, hi, we, we've just bought these puppies and we've brought them to have their jabs. Their puppies, their, their first eight-week jabs. At which point... The veterinary nurse couldn't control her laughing, so had to leave the room. And the vet came and had a look. He had a feel and, you know, whatever you do. And he said, where did you get these? They said, we bought them in a car park. Um, you know, we saw an advert like, you know, we've got them in a car park, out the back of a car, in a car park. He said, oh, how much, he said, how much you pay for them? said, 200 pound each. So what do you think you've bought? They said, Alsatian puppies. Alsatian. He said, I'm really sorry to have to tell you that these are not Alsatian puppies. Said, oh, no. They're mongrels or something. He said, they're not Alsatian puppies. They're guinea pigs. 
Like, really? I mean, I, I grew up with dogs, you know, I know about it. Like, they don't look, the, they're not the same, you know? You eat guinea pigs, you don't eat dogs. You can't, it's like, it's like, what? Sorry. <laughs> Some people in South America, I've never, I wouldn't mind trying. I used to be a butcher. I'm sorry, that was vulgar. Uh, in heaven, I think I'm going to be a vegan, but anyway. So, they're guinea pigs. Are you, are you serious? How, how can people fall for that? I mean, how can they fall for that? Everyone knows a guinea pig from an Alsatian puppy, don't they? When I went to it, when I went to, 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 to Northern Ireland in the summer, I just said to them again, just explain, you know, have I just made that story up? You know, did you really, is it really true? It's really true. But I honestly, saints, in the church sometimes, we will buy into things much more bizarre much less believable, much more ridiculous. We've got to come back to the cross. We've got to come back to the cross. I'm using up my time here. If we're not being added to and diluted by buying into a kind of religious legalism or religious liberalism, religious legalism, Some, we, we buy into this re, a religious liberalism and we let the world set the agenda. And many Christians, they're not at the kind of charismatic weird end, they're at the dilution end. They're kind of homeopathic and they just reduce, reduce, reduce and whatever the world finds acceptable is what they'll accept. And they let the world become a kind of Procrustean bed, whatever doesn't fit gets lopped off. And, if the, and, the, and the first thing the world will go for is the cross, because it's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. The world hates the cross. It is an offense, and they want to just clip it, clip the cross, whittle down the cross until it becomes a drumstick, not a cross. Let the world set the agenda. Matthew Paris, the atheist journalist, says, criticized the church. He said, why do you always bend to the prevailing mood? Why do you always bend? Why don't you just stand up and speak up for what you believe? But because the world finds it an offense, often people have listened more to the world than to the word and have tried to whittle it down. And there you've got all these Christian leaders who are very quick to write and tweet and blog and publish and preach against the cross. I spent a year just reading Nietzsche, which was not a good year, really, but because <laughs> Nietzsche is a nut job. He really was, but he was important, important ideologue for the 20th century, actually, and foundation of Nazism, in my view. But Nietzsche used to sign his letters, Dionysus against the crucified. Bacchus against the crucified. He'd point at a cross on a wall and say, God is a spider. Look at the spider on the wall. But I, in recent years, have read more criticism of the cross and sharper criticism of the cross 
from Christians than I have from atheists. Just undermining it, removing its offense, diluting its scarlet blood. It is an offense. It is a stumbling block. But it's where we live. And we're not going to sell out. Binya, do not sell out. I didn't want to come. I wanted to stay at home with my wife for the weekend, and I've been ill for a while. But I wanted to, in the end, I'm coming here because I want to just say this. Vineyard, do not sell out. Tell out the gospel. And I've never said that anywhere else apart from here. And I must remember it because it's quite good. But don't sell it out. We've got to contend for the faith as once delivered. Contend for it. That means we've got to fight for it. We've got to stand for it. We've got to defend it. We're not going to be sellouts. Do not sell out the gospel. Whatever else you do, the gospel, you've got to hold on and hold it out. Let me read a few more verses. One little illustration and I'll shut up. Turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul has written to this church. They, they just sold out. And Paul had to bring them back, recalibrate, bring them back to the beginning, back to basics, back to the cross. He starts with that in chapter end of 1 and 2. And he brings them back to it here in 15 as he's beginning to land the plane. And he says, now, verse 1 of chapter 15, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Why did he have to remind them? Because they'd left it. They'd forgotten it. They'd abandoned it. We've got to keep reminding ourselves of the gospel. Someone once asked me in an interview in this church, do we preach the gospel too much? They were just trying to probe, the, probe me, you know, the, the, they knew the right answer, they're a good man. I said, we don't preach it enough. Listen, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel, because some people forget it, they just don't get it. I preach to you, the gospel is something preached, preaching's not trendy anymore, it, not that it should be trendy, but it, you know, in church is often not cool. So we'll spend longer doing other stuff and less time in the Word, less time with preaching. But it's the gospel that comes to us through preaching. People, you know, you'll have heard that quote from St. Francis, preach the gospel, use words if you have to. Do you know that quote? You know it. Come on, you can put your hand up. Okay, a few of you know it. So it's often, St. Francis is often quoted Preach the gospel, use words if you must. But here's the thing, he never said it. He never said anything like it at all. In fact, St. Francis was a preacher. And when he couldn't find people to preach to, he would go and preach to whole flocks of geese because he just wanted to preach the gospel. And he would go and get hay bales and stand on them and preach to whoever would turn up. And then he'd go into the town and cast out demons. He was a ghostbuster and he was a preacher. Yeah. But we, got to, we, we need preachers. May God raise up 
This weekend, from this movement, young preachers. I'm fed up of going to conferences and being the old man with a gray beard preaching. It's always the same lineup. We like each other, but where are the new people? Where are the new leaders? Here. We're going to have to have time to pray for you guys to be preachers. But anyway, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you that you received. It doesn't work unless it isn't received. You've got to receive it and on which you've taken your stand. You've got to stand on it. You've got to stand, stand, and when you've done everything, stand. And by this gospel, you're saved. That's why it's so important, because it's the gospel that saves. It's not our mercy ministries. It's not our power ministry. It's not our beautiful worship. It's not our wonderful community and intimacy. These things create a context for the gospel, it's the gospel alone that can save. Those things can turn people onto the gospel. Those things go alongside the gospel. And you do that so well. But the gospel saves. And this is why it's so serious. Because if we lose the gospel, if we drop the cross, if we lose the plot, we've got nothing by which people can be saved. And what happens then is we build a culture of church around lots of things like ministry and worship, but without the preaching of the cross, is it even a church? It's people who like ministry. It's the cross that saves. It's the cross that saves. And what is this? He says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, not down the line, number one importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The technicalities of what exactly went on, we will never plumb their riches. And we don't want to reduce it to some sort of algebra or equation. But what we do want to say is he died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's a mystery and a marvel, but he died for our sins according to the scriptures and he rose again which showed that his death was sufficient and acceptable. And in rising, he conquers death, the consequence of sin. And we, by faith, hold on to his train. And we follow him all the way to heaven. We had a, a chap in our church. With this, I finish. I'm sorry if I've gone on too long. I'm sure I've gone on too long. We had a chap come to our church, a visitor from northern Nigeria, Spent a year doing a master's degree in Oxford. He was a Nigerian priest. And on his last day, I, I confess, I didn't even talk to him. I saw him in church. It's a large church. I don't talk to everyone. I, I'm a rub, rubbish pastor. That's why they send me away. Um, and uh, anyway, we interviewed him on this last day. So he said, so, hi. And so you've been here for a year? He said, yeah, I've been here for a year studying for a master's. Wonderful, and where are you from? I'm from northern Nigeria. And um, great, what do you do there? I'm a priest there. And then uh, the interviewer, Charlie, my colleague, said, how is it? He said, it's very tough. Oh, really, how tough? <laughs> he said, well, people I train with are dead, and um, you know, we're persecuted, we're harassed, and uh, you know, they've tried to bomb my car, you know, radical Islamists, and um, you know, we're, in, we're in a lot of trouble at the moment. Things went a little bit more serious at that point. And then Charlie said to him, 
do you have anything you want to say to us before you go? Anything you've got to say, he said, just this. This humble, noble Nigerian prince of a man. He stood in front of us and he said, do not sell out on the gospel here in the West that we are dying for in Africa. Don't sell out on the gospel here in the West that we're dying for in Africa. And you'll have seen this year about all the ongoing trouble in northern Nigeria with the Flasher tribe and the burning down of all the churches and the Christian communities. Many have been slain. That's his people. Don't sell out on the gospel here in the West that we're dying for. Vineyard, I know that was serious. We're going to have some wonderful, encouraging, uplifting themes throughout this weekend. But I just want to lay down that as a foundation. Future of the church is in her young leaders. And the young leaders, you know, they've got so much energy, vitality, and dynamism, and gifting, and creativity. I mean, you, you, they blow my mind, your generation. I look at my sons and his friends, and I think you're amazing. Really. Wow, what, what couldn't you do if you put your mind to it? With all the ability that you have and the technology that is now available, what can't you do? But whatever you do, you've got to be people rooted and grounding, grounded at the cross. And I know you're not going to sell it out, but you're going to tell it out. Let's stand. I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand over to the team. We're going to bring the the cross along as I pray and I just want to pray and let's bring ourselves before the Lord. Then perhaps if, if maybe one or two of the musicians come and just sing over us as we focus on the cross. We're just going to have a few moments, a few minutes Listen, you may have come here really, really exhausted. You think, what am I even doing here? I'm not sure I even believe in God. I'm just coming along for the ride. Some of you may be really just desperate for a touch of God and in all sorts of trouble in your mind or in your body or in your relationships. Some of you just feel you're on the edge of flunking out of university or flunking out of life. Others of you, you're just, your soul's just been shredded recently with relationships. Others of you, you're, you're really going for it. You're up for it. You're ready to go. You know, where's, where, where's the line? Where's the fight? And that, wherever you are on the spectrum, in your emotions and in your situations, we come to the cross. We bring it to the cross. And we say, I'm going to live from here. I'm going to live for this. And I'm going to spend myself giving it out. Amen?